everybody. I'm Aaron Good, and this is the American Exception Podcast. In this episode, I am rejoined by Daniel Kovalik, an American human rights lawyer, labor rights lawyer, and peace activist. He has contributed articles to Counterpunch, The Huffington Post, and Telesur. He teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Kovalik's books include The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, The Plot to Attack Iran, The Plot to Control the World, and the plot to overthrow Venezuela. So there are many plots here, uh, as is appropriate, considering that the empire is constantly conspiring to uh, make sure that it continues to rule the world while pretending to be all about freedom and democracy. Yes, a lot of plotting goes into that. He is also the author of No More War, How the West Violates International Law by Using Humanitarian Intervention to Advance Economic and Strategic Interests. He's also the author of uh, a subject of a previous podcast episode, uh, and that's the book, his book, Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. For today's purposes, I should note that Dan recently wrote Why We Need RFK Jr., Russia, Ukraine, and the Slide into Nuclear War. This article appeared in the Kennedy Beacon, which is run by Dan's publisher, Tony Lyons, and Tony's brother, Charlie Lyons. FYI, I also wrote an article for the Kennedy Beacon entitled, Kennedy Now More Than Ever, Why We Need RFK Jr. to Restore Public Trust. I didn't write the title, but it actually works, even if the article is much more sweeping than the title would suggest. It goes into a lot of the, the history of the U.S. empire and how the Kennedy assassination figures into that and how it all leads up to our present moment. But I digress. Only slightly, but still. I will put links to these articles in the show notes, but for now, let's hear from Dan about why a Castro-loving Soviet sympathizer like Dan Kovalik would support a Kennedy running for president. Kowalik, it's great to have you back with us. Thanks, Taryn. Really glad to be here. Thank you. Now, you and I have both written articles. I don't mind just went up the other day, so uh, you may not have seen it yet. Uh, but we've both written for the Kennedy Beacon, which is a super pack for uh, Robert supporting Robert F. Kennedy's uh, 2024 presidential campaign. And uh, the two of us are both politically well, well to the left of uh, the Democratic Party. And really, even of RFK Jr. and the Kennedys, and yet we're both uh, backing RFK Jr., even though that entails taking a lot of taking a lot of shit from people. But we've decided to do it anyway. So I'd like to hear from you. Uh, why have you decided to back um, RFK in 2024, and, uh, and why do you think that people on the left, people who are anti-imperialists, should support him, even if some of his positions are not, you know, the same as ours? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, in life in general, I think you cannot, you know, uh, demand perfection uh, of anyone, but certainly of an American politician. I mean, you kind of have to start from that premise, you know, that we're, we're dealing with a, a political system that's deeply flawed, deeply corrupt, where the Democratic Party that once See, you know, did some things and seemed to care somewhat for workers and poor people, have abandoned those people. 
and where what is left and right has shifted incredibly to the right, you know, um, that is to say, when you look at a Bill Clinton and his policies, for example, and Obama and Biden, they're much farther than the to the right than a Lyndon Johnson or John F. Kennedy or Franklin or, or Richard Nixon. You know, Richard Nixon. No, that's very true. Who was willing, by the way, to he would have signed on to uh, national health care, now known as Medicare for all. It's actually the AFL-CIO that uh, ended up helping defeat that. Um, for its own reasons. Well, they, they liked their Cadillac health plans, right? Well, they, that's how they marketed organizing. That's how they organized people, saying, we'll get you these great health benefits. If everyone had them, they wouldn't have that organizing yeah. um, um, thing to sell. But in any case, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the Ameri- you know, American politics have moved very, very far to the right. So Kennedy represents an attempt to at least move the political debate uh, further to the left, particularly for me, what I'm most excited about is his foreign, his position on foreign affairs. He wants to close, you know, the U.S.'s hundreds of bases around the world. I mean, probably not all of them, but a lot of them. He wants to reform uh, and restructure the CIA, which of course needs to happen. And he wants to make peace with Russia and China. Now, if he actually succeeded in all those things, that would be an amazing, amazing benefit to the U to Americans and to the world. I mean, I we would I would feel like a lot of my life's work would be would be done if he would he he would do all those things. Now, could if he even if he were elected, could he do all those things? Probably not. But the point is, one, he has the seems to have the aspiration to do it, and two, he's raising the debate on I think the key the key issue confronting of Americans, and it it has been the key issue certainly since World War II, and that is uh, the issue of us spending all of our treasure on war. And very little on infrastructure, poverty reduction, health care, education, et cetera, to the point where, you know, our cities are collapsing, our society's collapsing, but we have an infinite supply of money for weapons and war. Um, and that he wants to challenge. He wants to challenge all those things that I just mentioned. He wants to reprioritize government and government spending to spend it on human needs instead of war. That is huge. And even to have him in the debate, even to have him in the Democratic primary for as long as he can stay in, to raise that debate, to say to the Democratic Party, you've abandoned those types of issues that you at least used to promote to some extent. Yeah, of course, the Democrats often promoted those things in, you know, in the breach, right? They, they, you know, of course, started the Vietnam War, for example, and other things. But they at least, you know, had a certain trajectory towards more butter and less guns, right? And again, that's what he seems to be about. And that, for me, that that's worth supporting him, if for no other reason. Right. So I, I have, uh, of course... 
my own answers to these questions, and they often are uh, similar to what to what yours would be. But I'm going to get I'll raise a one that's kind of painful for me to even engage with because it, it's uh, I, I don't I don't it doesn't bring me any joy at, at all. And that is RFK's uh, Israel policy. So RFK has come out as a strong supporter of Israel. Down the line, he is just not questioning the, the main propaganda myths of the Israel lobby and that have been used to legitimize um, you know, the, the Zionist project. And I, I don't have any sympathy for Israel uh, in this case, but uh, and so I don't agree with RFK's position, but I'm supporting him anyway. Uh, I would guess I, I'm guessing that you similarly have some sympathy for the Palestinians, but you're still supporting RFK. Why do you think that this uh, Israel, the Israel position that he has staked out, is not disqualifying or unforgivable uh, for a presidential candidate to be uh, to be taking these positions? Well, first of all, yes, I have more th more than sympathy for the Palestinians. As I look at all the Palestinian artwork I have on my wall. I, I'm a very avid supporter of the Palestinian cause. I am very deeply critical of Israel and the U.S. support for Israel, so I'll put that out there. So I strongly d disagree with RFK's position on this, and in fact, he seems to have a, you know, a fairly right-wing position on it. Now, and as you say, that is a painful thing. However, first of all, I think in the end, what what you know, the the difference between him and, and Biden and Trump, the main candidates, there's probably very little difference. So that that is to say that on that issue, it's a wash. You know, like uh, you know, if you didn't support him, the other candidates are no better. Okay, so that's important to point out. Um. But again, it goes back to what I said at the beginning. We, you, you, in general, you cannot insist on purity from anyone, from any ally, from any comrade, and you certainly can't insist on it from a candidate for president of the United States. I mean, that would just be silly um, to insist on that because we're not, you know, we're we're a deeply flawed country. We have a very deeply flawed government. We have a very strong military industrial complex. Israel has, has been, you know, the, um, what's the word? I mean, it's just been this unmovable force in American politics for a long time. We yeah, I mean, the only, the, you know, the only, ironically, the only president who really confronted Israel in any substantial way was JFK. He, uh, he, he apparently forced the resignation of Ben-Gurion because he was insisting on inspecting those nuclear sites. And rather than receive a diplomatic communication and acknowledge the receipt of it uh, near the end of JFK's life, although he didn't know it, of course, um, Ben-Gurion resigned rather than accept receipt of that letter uh, that was you know, saying that basically if you don't allow inspections of Demona, it's going to call into question the relationship, uh, you know, the continued support of... I mean, that was really something. And uh, so it's ironic that RFK is taking this position and that people are not really putting this into the larger context. But, uh, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. It, yeah. And I mean, so here's my position is you support him on the issues you support him on and you try to push him on the issues that you don't like. 
And you have to do that for any candidate that you support. I mean, the problem with American politics in general, or how people view American politics, is that if you get in your candidate, whoever that is, that you th- you can then go go to sleep for the next four years because they're going to do what you want them to do. Well, that's never going to be true. And we're, we will always, whatever candidate we have, uh, if we get them elected, we will have to push them to do the right thing. I think even Roosevelt said that, make me do it, right, something like that. Um, and again, we mentioned Richard Nixon, that he was more progressive than the modern-day Democrats, not because he was in his heart and, and you know, and not because he was by nature, but because it, there, it was a different society. You had, a, a, you had major peace protest movements. You had major protests uh, for social justice that forced him to the left. And you would, even assuming Bobby Kennedy were elected, you would have to have those movements even to support the things he wants to do, but certainly to protest the things you don't like about him. I mean, to me, that just stands to reason. And he, but but he, it doesn't take away from the fact that he is a unique candidate uh, in terms of these other foreign affairs policies and other policies that I've already mentioned. Yeah. Let's uh, – thinking about the question of, of Israel here, I mean – when I look at it, you know, I was dismayed by, in a sense, when he uh, went after Roger Waters. I didn't really go after him, but he was like kind of, you know, backed away from him. They said he threw him under the bus, but he really didn't do that. He just said like, oh, well, you know, I don't agree with him on Israel and I disavow him. He didn't call him, you know, an anti-Semite, although I think he did call Ilhan Omar an anti-Semite, which I thought was really regrettable and, you know, not fair. But the the, the bigger question to me is like, is it? Given the circumstances here, what would if he were to like just come out and be totally righteous about the Palestinian case, what would be the impact of that? I mean, they're already like even after he had come out supporting Israel, the ADL put something out, you know, a few weeks later calling him an anti-Semite. So given what happened to Corbyn and the fact that Congress is 99.8 percent, you know, Zionist. Would it even would it be what would what would be the logic of RFK taking up the Palestinian cause or, you know, having a good position on Israel? Like what would would that even would that help or hurt his chances of like, you know, winding down the U.S. empire without blowing up the world? Uh, I mean, what do you what do you think is the political calculus on this? If we can set aside the question of like trying to figure out what leaders believe in their heart of hearts, you know, when it's not quite clear, like what's the strategic What's the strategy? How does it pay off here for him to either be pro-Israel or anti-Israel? Well, I mean, I think you touched on some good points, and we should remind people who Jeremy Corbyn is, if they don't know, was the head of the Labor Party in Great Britain, who seemed to be poised to be the next prime minister. And he really was, um, his political career really was destroyed by false claims of anti-Semitism. And they were based on his pro-Palestinian statements and whatnot. Uh, I remember those even be, being repeated in the U.S., like by NPR, by Scott Simon at NPR, just call, just saying he was anti-Semite, bare, with barely even trying to 
substantiate that. So one, I think if you look at that, what happened to Corbyn, if you're an American politician seeking the highest office in the land, you would have to look at that. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I, you know, strategically, he might say this is the one issue, maybe a couple others too, that he makes needs to make a compromise on, or, or it would be completely impossible for him to win uh, the Democratic primary in a, a general election, if even to survive it physically, right? I mean. Um, he might even be killed for taking well, a very, very that may, that may happen regardless. I mean, I think, uh, it's... yeah, well, that's the other thing, you know, um, which I would say to Robert, if I was talking to Bobby Kennedy right now, I would kind of say my own view would be, look, you're so far out there on these other issues. And yeah, you are so you already have a target on your back. You might as well take the right position on Israel, you know. Um, and I don't know what's going through his mind on that, but I, I do think it may be, it also may be a matter of funding. He may have funders that insist on, on a certain position on Israel. Oh, I, yeah. I, I think that, I think that that could potentially be a part of the problem. And I don't mean this as a way of saying like, oh, of course, because you know, they fund everything. That's not what I mean at all. What I mean is that this system is so corrupt and weighted uh, in favor of of concentrations of money, that uh, it's there's really very little room for any kind of genuine democratic candidacy uh, to, in any venue in the United States. And so, if what he is run, when, by running against the empire, I mean, he's saying, "Come out and said, I'm the reason for my policies or for my candidacy is that the neo this neocon these neocon nuts control foreign policy." Uh, and Wall Street controls domestic policy. Well, when you're saying that, you're basically going at the entire upper strata of the U.S. Um, uh, of the U.S., the power elite of the U.S. And that, how do you put together a coalition, not just of voters potentially, which he's trying to put together a, a kind of you know cross-partisan uh, formation, I think. But you, how are you going to in, uh, draw support from? sections of people who do have some some money and he's been he's friendly to some uh i think cryptocurrency people who you know they may be supporting his campaign i don't know how much so that seems to be one little segment of industry and he has get, gets some support from uh elite figures like musk uh you know tucker seems friendly towards him at least and, but like it, it's a question of so the you know people who are pro-israel perhaps you know, perhaps some of them see the writing on the wall that, like, you know, the U.S. empire is going to fall. Israel will be in a precarious position. Maybe somebody who could unwind the empire while still having a commitment to protect Israel for the coming, you know, post-imperial world. I mean, these are all reasons that you could see why he would take these positions, even if, to my mind, like, there's just no getting around how terrible the Palestinians have been treated. And so... You know. And continue to be treated. I mean, you know, you see the videos every day of the mistreatment. And again, I will never stop fighting for the Palestinian people and supporting them. Uh, but again, this is probably I go back to this thing like how how can one insist on like the perfect candidate? There is none. 
except again, maybe a Cornell West, but he's a symbolic candidate. He's not, he's not, look, Kennedy himself has, uh, you know, his chances of being elected are very slim. Uh, but Cornell West, it would, you know, his chances are, you know, are downright, you know, uh, you know, are close to the spectrum of impossible. Yeah, right? they kind of round to zero, if we're going to be honest. And I yeah. think he's, I think he's an awesome guy, and what he says is really important. But realistically, and he's not running in the Democratic primary. He's not running in a primary of the two major parties. And there's a benefit to that for Kennedy to be in the race, to be at least at the moment the main contender. Um, I guess the other one being this, what's her name, Marianne Williamson or what? I don't even know, um, who I also don't view as a serious candidate. So he's right now the only serious challenger to uh, to Joe Biden. He's polling, I guess, at like 15 percent support right now. But that's before the primaries even started. I mean, it's still a significant percentage. So, um, so you have a serious contender who's got you know, some real good things going for him, including his name, which is a very beloved name in American politics. Um, he could give Biden a run for the money. And if he did that, and while he did that, he had a platform to talk about his anti-war, anti-imperial positions, that would be a win. That would be huge. And, uh, and yeah, okay, so then he's going to say some bad things on some other issues. But, you know, again, yeah, I, my own view is you got to take the bad with the good. I mean, I, I don't I don't understand the idea that you would therefore just say, oh, I guess I can't support. Really, you'd have to say, I just can't support anyone. Not not seriously. Again, I'll support Cornell West, which, again, is, is, is a protest vote, you know, which is fine. You could do that. But we live. No, I mean, I'll end up voting yeah. for Cornell if RFK drops out. But I, a number of things that he's done, makes sense if he, if you think, if you ask yourself the question, is he trying to set himself up to eventually do a dirty break with the Democrats and run as an independent, which I think he should do, and I think that once they're going to screw him in different ways, and he's, they've already argued in, in court, the Democrats have that, they, and won with the argument that they, as an organization, have no obligation to hold a fair primary process. So I think it's like they're on a silver platter for him if he'll do it. I know his family will give him all sorts of grief about it, but I think that he is motivated. This is where I can tolerate, okay, like I worked for Obama, and I was you know, horribly disappointed, and it radicalized me after the fact because I was like, what kind of dark force holds power over the presidency? that would produce something like what we're seeing with the Obama candidacy and then his actual presidency. And so I looked at the Kennedy assassination and did, uh, that, that really, that served to radicalize me. I think RFK could go as an independent and he would, he would run. And to my mind, what's different between him and Obama is that I think in retrospect, you look at people like Clinton, look at people like Obama and you see that they're ambitious and they run for they they're backed by these other you know forces, uh, backed by Wall Street and other other you know aspects of Wall Street. And then when they run, you find out that a lot of what they were saying was bullshit. And then they they leave office. They've made the rich people a lot richer. They get all these speaking fees and so on. Okay, so 
in my mind, the bullshit that they say before they get elected and what they do, you can just see it's ambition. They want to aggrandize themselves and get rich. I don't normally want to think that much about like what really makes a politician tick, you know, this or that, because especially because both parties are so corrupt. In RFK Jr.'s case, I, ha I, I believe completely that he is sincere about wanting to wind down the U.S. empire uh, and wanting to also uh, disclose what happened to the people who were assassinated in the 60s, those uh, figures like MLK and the Kennedy brothers and Malcolm X. You know, he signed statements to that effect. I think he is sincere about that. And so to my mind, that means you have to treat his bullshit a little bit differently than like Obama's bullshit, because I think his is in service to the greater good, whereas Obama's was not. And so I, I think that that's very important if you want to have a, a serious, sophisticated adult way of looking at, at, our, at our insane political system. Yeah, well, and I would say a couple things to that. I mean, Obama and Clinton and Biden never claimed that they were going to end the war. Okay, so first of all, they they didn't even pretend that they were going to do those things. Okay, at least Kennedy is saying that's those are the, you know that's something he wants to do, is to end our endless war. So, um, that's the difference between them. But again, look, we're at a very important turning point in world history where we could either go headlong into World War III with Russia and or China, and there are people in the Biden administration who clearly want to do that and are willing to risk nuclear war to do that. Or we could take a hard look at ourselves and our priorities and decide to pull back from that brink and to find a way to create a peace economy that takes care of people's needs and does not prioritize war. Kennedy stands for that. And to not support that, I believe, is to pretty much just throw up your hands and to really kind of concede that you really don't want to do the hard work to have to make serious change. Uh, I mean, what, what else is out there that's happening that is challenging the war machine. There's nothing. There's nothing happening. There were two big two demonstrations this year in Washington, D.C. Uh, against the wars. And they were tiny. They were, I was at the second one in March. Maybe there were a few thousand people, and it was mostly, frankly, I've described it as like 10 different Trotskyist groups giving their papers to each other. I mean, it was a sectarian event that did nothing. I'm was sorry. that the second one or the first one? That was the second one. Because yeah, the first one was like, the second one was all the people who boycotted the first one, right? Well, it's true. And I do blame those people for not working with people on the first one. But even if you put the two together, it wasn't a huge... Right. It wouldn't have been huge, right? Right. But it, it seems like that inability to work together... It could have been bigger if if they could been able to get over that. Then it could have been bigger than they were together, like as one. Yes, it would have been bigger than the sum of their parts. I agree with that, and I I totally agree. But the point is that it, what happened happened. You had two demonstrations that were tiny, and I don't see much follow up, if any. So what's out there? What and who is out there of any? You know, 
um, status that is saying we got to end these wars. You know, to talk about the you to challenge the Ukraine war is considered verboten now. The only guy in network TV who was doing it, Tucker Carlson, was fired. I don't even uh, know that's why he was fired. He and I don't fired think it, for it may not have been, but he was fired so have, for JFK. Who knows? Yeah. You have no voice now in mainstream press who is speaking on this issue. None. You know, so you got Kennedy who is, who if he, who could use the bully pulpit to raise this issue, why wouldn't you support that? And again, even if you want to support it conditionally and say, look, you know, I support that, but I don't support your position on Israel. Maybe you don't support his position on the border or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of things you might not support. Border position is is interesting though. He's all he, on the one hand, he does say some things where he's like, "Well, we do need, we're going to need a wall in some sections." Well, you know, I don't, I don't really know. Some of these issues are com- complicated, but he also says like the U.S. foreign policy and how we've overthrown all these governments in Latin America and elsewhere around the world. This has created the world where that's so unstable, and that like we need to understand how these things are connected. That is. Well, way ahead of like what I've heard any presidential contenders saying. I mean, sometimes Bernie Sanders would get into those things, but Bernie Sanders, by the time he was running, I mean, this is the this is one thing I think people are for, are not wanting to acknowledge because of their ideology. On some issues, with if you compare RFK to Bernie or even Cornell West, there are a number of things where RFK is better than them. I mean, when it comes to the crimes of empire, he is way better than them. Like they are. I've heard Cornell talk about the MLK case, and he kind of implies that this, the government did it, you know. But he he's never signed anything to that effect, like RFK did, for example. Uh, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders was always really bad. He was even worse on U.S. foreign policy. Like he's was and he terrible. wasn't good on Israel either. Yeah, no, I mean, and he yeah he wasn't he, he his campaign was run on purely domestic social issues, which were important, and I supported. Bernie for that reason. But he was not running to challenge U.S. foreign policy. That was not his bag at all. Right. And those the DSA people that like have that grew up because of you know how DSA kind of became a much bigger thing because of Bernie. But those a lot of those people and not all of them because there's some diversity in that group and some of them do good work. But a lot a number of them are they're generically opposed to imperialism but it but whatever war the u.s is in they basically accept the pr for it at the moment like with the syria thing you know like oh help those moderate rebels and those anarchist kurds or like uh you know the maidan thing is like a revolutionary uprising and you got to help ukraine like they always are suckers for whatever what whatever like liberal progressive pr that they're trying to put on whatever war they're starting like those those types are always uh, a number of them or a lot of them are always gullible for that. I mean, they always fall for it. I don't, it's amazing. Well, DSA, you know, I mean, it has a history to it. It's been deeply anti-communist and it has been, you know, I think fundamentally supportive of the empire. And you're right. I mean, it's rare that they've seen a war they haven't supported to one extent or another. And there are exceptions, as you say, within the ranks of the DSA. There are very good people. 
who, who don't take that position. But I think as an institution, you can look at it and, and see that it is not – it really hasn't been a serious voice for peace or against war. And honestly, let's face it, it's not a serious voice for anything because it is so – they don't have a party line. It, 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 you know, by, by their own decision and by their own nature, it's a kind of a, just a open-ended group that anyone can join. There's no ideological litmus test. There's really no uh, – I mean they have resolutions they pass, but they – you know. I would say that you know you don't have to honor those to be in the group or to support them. Uh, the point is, you have a, you know a fairly large organization with no party discipline whatsoever, probably less than even the Republicans and Democrats have. And so I don't, you know, so what can you say about it? What well, it's not leading to anything, as far as I can tell, you know. Um, and you have a left in general in the United States and not, that's not leading people to anything. Um, yeah, that's just it with the Cornell thing. I'm just like, okay, Cornell consistently articulates a leftist perspective across the board, and he does it very well. He's the most charismatic, eloquent uh, spokesman we could have for the, the left, such as it is. And you, uh, how much can he actually – where will that actually take him? Like, where, And we, we see like <laughs> – I, I would, I, you know, I agree with myself a hundred percent. Right. I mean, this is, but I'm not going to run for president, even though I would agree with all of them because I wouldn't win, not just because I don't have, you know, name recognition or whatever, because the ideas that I hold are not going to garner a majority of the votes in a presidential election. You know, I mean, it's a, this is, this is really something. Yeah, no, of course. And again, you have to understand that. And again, I'm not saying, of course, electoral politics in and of itself, I think it's it's fair if people want to take the position that they don't, they're not interested in electoral politics for a lot of reasons. But, and I've certainly at various times in my life taken that position, but I see Kennedy as representing something different, something worth supporting, and something wherein supporting him could where you could use the electoral system to advance very important ideas and very important programs yeah that i mean this this imp, this question of empire to me is is the heart of it and it's the thing that has has uh, made politics so awful in the united states it's that it's a tiny group at the top that benefit from running that from u.s hegemony uh, and the fact that the U.S. is the global hegemon and the global sovereign, is essentially, uh, and it has been since end of World War II, and that if you change by changing that, because really what Kennedy is doing is he's sort of saying like we sh I mean, he says this explicitly. He says that they should – FDR had the, had the urge to not recreate the British Empire you know, after World War II, and the U.S. chose a different path. So you know, Henry Wallace saying it should be the century of the common man. Or JFK at the end of his life saying we need peace, we need cooperation, you know. I mean, that is these are big. Th this is the heart of everything is the global empire. This is the Western civilization, Western imperialism, modernity in the modern age. You know, all of it was predicated upon Western imperialism and endless expansion of uh, Western wealth and capital. And if if without with the fall of the U.S. as the global hegemon, it is going to 
be a profound shift in the the power of and the nature of politics. And I don't think that neither you or I know exactly what that means, but it, it needs to be managed in some sort of way by people who understand that this transition has to happen. And that's that is something that Kennedy offers. It's not that he's he represents the pinnacle of where I think we should be headed, but just saying, hey, let's have some restoration of the Bill of Rights and human rights and let's wind down all of these co covert operations in the military bases and let's try to do what China has done, which is have you know productive relations with other countries around the world and invest in them and not dominate and exploit them. I mean, it's actually profound and I, I'm a little, you know, I'm not happy about the fact that so many on the left do not understand, cannot put his candidacy in the, in the bigger context of this empire that's already circling the drain and, and what options are we have uh, at this, at this moment, I feel like they are not seizing this moment at all. They're sectarian and petty uh, and doctrinaire about these things. Yeah, well, that is the problem, isn't it? I mean, that is the big problem. I mean, um, you have people who don't see the forest for the trees. And um, again, I do think there is this insistence on ideological purity that has destroyed the American left, you know. Uh, I'll give an example of it uh, that I think is relevant here. And I'm, I, I don't. I keep forgetting his name. That guy who sang that big song now that went viral about oh, the, the ain't got a dollar guy. But he's got some other name. It's, yeah, I North forget, yeah. Uh, the rich North of Richmond. Yeah, North, Richmond, that, Richmond just, North of Richmond. Yeah. yeah. And it's I, got, I think he was a. I think he was a plant of some kind. Uh, I, I I tend to think that. But. Well, he, I don't know if he is or he isn't. But what I will say is that it. His music is resonating with a lot of people and for a lot of good reasons. I think that uh, – and he's being criticized by the left as some right-wing guy and all this stuff. And I don't look at it that way. And I, I actually I, – my feeling is if you can't work with, with people who, who, who find something in that song that's meaningful, you really aren't interested in working politically in this country with people, period. Yeah. You've written off a majority of the American working class, which the left did a long time ago. Let's face it. I mean, the left is focusing on social issues to the exclusion of working class issues and to the exclusion of dealing with issues of war and peace. And they don't know who their enemies are. They don't know who their friends are. And they have – they really um, look down upon the American working class and um, – are failing miserably for that reason. I mean, they don't even want to succeed. That's the whole thing. There's no goal of succeeding because if you can't work with your fellow Americans for social change, you're not going to succeed. It's all, you know, and I maybe I'm being too tough, but a lot of it is, is virtue signaling and uh, meaningless virtue signaling. And I think, uh, you know, people's a lot of people's position around Kennedy represents that as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, and also the like fear of, I mean, it's you really see some of the pernicious effects of the way our media system works and that like some of the people who are we now do have a sort of customer driven model for some left wing media organizations. But given that they depend on people who are of the DSA mindset for subscriptions, 
then even some of these more radical people like don't want to touch this. So they're just kind of like, they're not the people who are, have the, are in a position to influence people are also sensitive to like market mechanisms. So they get disciplined in a way, even if they don't, even if they might actually be people who you think could see the value of something like this, like who wants to take all this flack? Yeah, no. And, and that's true about many issues. You know, I, there's a lack of, of candor that people have about their political views because as you say, they get disciplined, they get disciplined in social media, whether that means being disciplined by being attacked on social media, ostracized, or as you say, maybe they're even disciplined financially if they depend on social media or Substack or other things for their, um, uh, you know, to make ends meet. You know, so, I, I actually asked uh, the, when the Ukraine war happened, I approached some people and I said, hey, you know, I'm I'm friendly with Oliver Stone. I might be able to get him to come on and talk about Ukraine on fire, which is pretty relevant now that, that this this war has started. And people didn't want to they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to bring Oliver Stone on to talk about that. And I, I, I don't I think it was because of the, the uh, total the propaganda uh, Wurlitzer was so powerful at that point that like you didn't want to they just a lot of people were like I just I'm not going to touch this if you're on the left and even if you're anti-imperialist like the propaganda was so powerful that they were like well I'm going to I don't want to I'm not going to back off of this yeah no of course a lot of people did that you know and what does that do it just you then leave the field and to the mainstream media that are going to push the pro-war narrative. And frankly, that means pushing lies, you know? Um, so there, there is a lot of, there is a lack of political courage too in America. I would say, especially amongst the left. And again, I mean, it's also very strange when you look at like the polls right now about the Ukraine conflict, a majority of Americans now do oppose sending more weapons to ukraine which is wonderful but it's amazing the, thinking about how the media what the media coverage has been like it's just this is where you i don't think you can blame the public it's that's a thing on the on the left or liberal left is they just want to look down on republicans and the, the american people and make all these things assumptions about how they're all warlike and whatever but like a lot of times they are ahead of the of what huge amounts of propaganda have tried to make them believe like they dis, they eventually disbelieve it like single payer support for single payer for example or, or op, even now opposition to the Ukraine war when everything they've been bombarded with is like the Ukrainian war is virtuous no i mean the republic I, what i was going to say is if you look at the breakdown of who's opposing the war, it's many more Republicans, a great, much greater percentage of Republicans oppose the war than the Democrats. I mean, to the extent that it now a majority of Americans oppose the war in Ukraine, it's because of the Republicans. Most yeah. Democrats support it. Right. Most liberals support it. Yeah, which Many is leftists support it. And so, you know, you just have, uh, uh, you know, the left, um, again, liberal left is just, it's it's rudderless. It's out to lunch on so many things. I mean, uh, that is what is sad. Um, 
you know, well, you're more see. on the, but you're on the left, and you're, you know, you're you're pretty much on the. I mean, you're a, you're basically a com- you have communist ideology, right? But but you don't subscribe to that. I mean, another there's other people who are Marxist communists. I mean, they don't subscribe to this view of the of the U.S. left, which is very weird. And I think about the Kennedy example, and I'm talking about JFK this time. I mean, recall that Kennedy gets elected president by really being belligerent about Cuba, saying that like Nixon had dithered about Cuba and, you know, let these communists take over and threaten our freedom from right off the coast. And, you know, he should have been more vigilant, protecting us from communism and all that bullshit that he says. And he does he does green light the Bay of Pigs and then he refuses to go through. But by the end of his presidency, when he gets assassinated, uh, Fidel Castro hears the news and says, oh, God, this is terrible news. Uh, th- everything has changed. And uh, he could have been the best president ever if he, uh, you know, he could have been better than Lincoln. Um, he says that, tell him, he told somebody, tell JFK that if he thinks it would help him to get reelected, I'll, I'll make a statement about how I'm totally uh, f- supporting Barry Goldwater, right? I mean, so co- people like Castro, people like Khrushchev, who r- were devastated by the Kennedy assassination because they recognize what it meant. But then the people on the left will rubbish Kennedy all the time. And then they'll even talk about Cuba and they'll say, look at how he tried to assassinate Castro, which there's no documentation of that, of him doing that. Uh, and it's like, well, what, what did Castro actually think about this? Oh, they don't care because the leftists in the U.S., they're the real communists. You know, they understand they haven't been corrupted by whatever Castro's revisionism or so on and so on. I mean, what is wrong with this strain on the left that is just um, so doctrinaire and dogmatic about these things? Uh, I mean, it's a it's a debating society, I think, because I do think these changes are going to happen. It's just it's really going to be Russia and China and then the global south that bring down the U.S. empire, because I don't see that the left in the U.S. is is anything other than like a debate society at best. And the level of debate isn't even very good. No, I agree with you. I mean, I, and that's why you have to be creative. Like, if you're if you're just going to rely on, on working with with avowed leftists to try to accomplish something, I mean, you're not going to accomplish anything. See, I'm a very pragmatic person, right? I, I come to being, I came to be a socialist because I care about people. I care about poor people, care about working people. That may sound kind of. Um, quaint or something, but it's true, you know. And you know, I'm always trying to think of creative ways to to try to improve the world, you know, for lack of a better way to put it. And um, right now, I don't see the left in the United States as as participating in that struggle. I don't see them as really, for the most part. Uh, trying to pragmatically change the world. And I want to work with people that do want to do that. And I am willing to work with people who I don't agree with everything, uh, you know, that they may believe that I may oppose on different things. But again, if someone wants to work for peace and against war, um, I'm going to work with those people, you know. And that that goes back to what happened this year with those two demonstrations where, you know, there were leftists who poo-pooed the first demonstration saying, oh, you got libertarians in there. I don't want to work with those people. And I don't want to work with people who have different views on gender. 
ideology than I do. And so they just said, OK, so where I'm not not only am I not going to go to their protest, I'm going to tell other people not to go and I'm going to have my own protest where, again, it's just me and my buddies who are going because no one you know, we're not reaching out to anyone else. Well, that's not the kind of politics I want to do. I mean, that, it's because it's meaningless. It doesn't have any impact. It's just, you know. Um, yeah, I saw there were there, a lot of people there ended up being more discussion about how you shouldn't go to those protests rather than the total fiasco and disaster of the, 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 the Ukraine war. Yeah, I mean, which, again, it, 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 you know, the, this is a matter of life and death. This could be the matter of human survival or not survival. We are on the verge of a nuclear war with Russia. And you don't have to take my word for it. Joe Biden himself has said we are closer to a nuclear apocalypse now than at any time in human history, okay? And he's the one making it happen. He is, he is the one that has made it that risky, right? Or the people around him. I don't, I'm using Biden generically. I don't know if he's really in charge. I, I kind of doubt it. But his, his administration is making it nuclear war if not inevitable, it's making it a great danger. It's right the now. craziest thing I've ever seen because I actually said very early on, like, I don't see how this can go on for very, for forever because I don't see how Ukraine can possibly win. And every to the extent that the battlefield fortunes could be reversed by NATO, then all roads lead to nuclear war. So what is even what is the point of this? And the it's left doesn't it's astounding even, to me. Yeah, and the you know, liberals in the left don't even care about nuclear war anymore. They don't. It's like, oh, there might be a nuclear. Oh, okay. Whatever. They actually think it's like a virtue. There, some you you see some people. Uh, I don't want to be too much on the like apocryphal tweets or whatever, but I, I've seen things of people being like, well, you can't let Putin blackmail people uh, to give in to bullies. Otherwise, you know, we're just going to lose. So we need to stand up here, and it's like. Actually, no. You have to if a, a if a country has a nuclear doomsday machine, you actually have to listen to them when they say we absolutely refuse to accept X and Y. Like because otherwise, nuclear doomsday is bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, there's almost a nihilism to it, you know. But then people will, you know, worry about global climate change, which is something that, frankly, to the extent. It's going to, you know, threaten humanity. That's more of a long-term issue. Nu a nuclear war is something that would destroy, could destroy us almost instantaneously, you know. And yet again, that that is not a concern amongst, you know, uh, the liberal left in 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 the United States. And it used to be. It used to be a big thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, it used to be a big preoccupation. So yeah. it's very strange. I, I, I just the priorities of uh, of, again, progressive people these days, I don't understand. And I feel very alienated from most of what passes as the left in America. Um, and, you know, that's fine. So then I'm going to work with other people. I mean, again, because I, I, you know, I want to have a better world and I want the world to exist.
we can fix problems as long as we don't blow up the world or release right. some virus that destroys human civilization. You know, I mean, probably some people would survive any kind of viral attack, but it could actually bring about, you know, collapse of civilization in some way or another. That's another thing that RFK is the only one talking about. The implications of this biomedical uh, industrial, you know, military complex, the like the bioweapons research, vaccine research, but really it is indistinguishable from weapons development when you look at what they're actually doing because they have to create the microbe that they need to create a vaccine for and they have to add things to the, these viruses to make them more dangerous so then they can figure out how to cure them. This is madness. And it's an opportunity for who knows what kind of malfeasance or, you know, uh, other terrible schemes could be related to this. And, and RFK is the only one saying we need to, like, have a, a treaty, an internationally enforced treaty with teeth and whistleblower protections and so on. Like, these are existential issues. And he's really, like, uh, on the nuclear one and on the bioweapons one, those are reasons enough to vote for him, in my opinion, because nobody else is saying anything about these things in a meaningful way. Yeah, and, and, and these are not just abstract issues. We now, our own government has said that it's, it. well, I forget the words they used. I want to be totally accurate here, but they think it's likely now that the COVID pandemic sprung from U.S.-supported research that was being done in Wuhan, China. That's what Jeffrey Sachs has concluded, that that's the most probable. Yeah, and others have said that. Um, and that seems like a very legitimate position to, to take and to believe. Now, and I, I think if that happened, it was most likely an accident, but it was an accident springing from exactly what you're saying. When you are creating deadly viruses, even if you're doing it um, to be able to create a vaccine for a virus you fear coming down the pike. Well, if you've created it already and it, it, it you know, there's a likelihood it's going to <laughs> um, get released somehow. And that, that appears that that may very well may have happened. So we're not even dealing with, you know, some sort of paranoid fantasies. I mean, this is a reality. And of course you have these, what is it, 20 some bio labs that Russia's found in Ukraine and we've admitted that they are there. And what is that all about? <laughs> I would, uh, can you, I like, I, I'm not gonna say I know, oh, I know, I know precisely what they were doing, but I, I absolutely do not believe any benign explanations of it. Like I'm sure there's every reason to suspect that nefarious, clandestine, uh, you know, sh chicanery w was was being pursued at those at, at those uh, places. And only because we've done it in the past. I mean, because we literally have used biological weapons against people. You know, Cuba comes to mind. Well, that's probably why they killed Frank Olson in 1953. Because right, threw him out of the happened, window. And, it yeah. happened right at the time that they had – Jeffrey Kay found documents where they're saying, like, the clandestine side of the, the you know, uh, of, the, of the military intelligence, you know, complex was saying – we need to launch this program to uh, aggressively protect our uh, any public bad publicity from coming out about these this issue. The Chinese propaganda doesn't get amplified, but if you read it if you read it closely, it's like it's more or less saying they need to take like exceptional action to 
uh, make sure that this story does not, you know, blow up in their faces. So, and then the Olsen assassination happens a little bit afterwards, which seems very much like that's what it was about. Well, and the other thing we have to mention, and I think we'll, in all this discussion, again, you know, for those concerned about global warming and, and climate change and envi environmental degradation is the destruction of uh, the Nord Stream. Yeah, right. Which happened. This, this mystery, this mysterious mystery. This mysterious thing, which, of course, at first they've tried to blame on Russia that it destroyed its own pipeline. Um, and now I think it's certainly been narrowed down. I mean, I believe I believe Seymour Hirsch when he says the U.S. did it. I think they're the likely culprit. But even if you believe the United States own, own claims about it, it was the Ukrainians. So I think— I think we, we have to believe now, I think it's pretty certain, that someone on our side did it. It was not the Russians or someone on their side. It was someone, it was either the U.S. or its allies that did it, okay? Yeah. And if you believe that, then you also have to accept the fact that the U.S. and or its allies committed the greatest act of environmental terrorism in world history by releasing hundreds of thousands of tons of methane gas. Yeah, it's, it's, it's horrific. It's horrific, and no one talks about it. No one will put their heads around that, not even Greta Thunberg, right? She has not weighed in on that. Now, and why is that important? Because I think she, you know, again, it's, this isn't about personalities. I, I have nothing against her personally, but she represents something. She is the voice for whatever reason of the environmental movement. And she, I mean, obviously she has a lot of support amongst the ruling class who has promoted her strangely to be, to take that role, right. By making her person of the year and all sorts of weird stuff, you know, the, which I, I, I think bear no resemblance to what, to reality, to the, to the reality of what she's contributed to the world. But the point is when you have this very important figure, who won't even address the greatest act of environmental terrorism in the world. There's something wrong. And again, I think the left and liberals in the U.S. also suffer from the fact that they will protest all sorts of pipelines and all sorts of uh, fossil fuels and say nothing about that. Yeah. Which is, yeah, a relevant thing because it is a product of war, you know, and it it, it is a symbol of how it's probably the most emblematic symbol of why this support of Ukraine is rotten. Oh yeah. Oh, it's so it's so uh, it, it's so full of meaning. I mean, the 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 reasons why because it's it also gets into like why you have NATO expansion and all these provocations in the first place. It goes back and it goes back to the earlier parts of the 20th century. They do not want Russia to be economically integrated with Western Europe. And, right. Uh, well, and it hurts. It hurt our own allies. That's the other thing we have to come to grips with. Is that you can put allies in parentheses I mean, or scare quotes, you know? Right. I mean, it's destroyed the German economy and other economies. Um, so what is all this about? And again, it goes back to what we're saying. There's only one candidate that really is asking these questions: Why are we doing this? And who is this benefiting? None of this is benefiting the American people. Certainly, it's not benefiting the victims of uh, U.S. empire abroad, you know. And again, it's Kennedy that at least is asking those questions. 
and saying that he wants to do something about it. Well, again, that's enough for me to support him. Right. And when I think of Greta, you know what it, it reminds me of? Like this is the liberals, you know, your liberal establishment people. Like they, they, they create these sort of psych, these narratives or psychological operations. I don't know what you want to call them, where there's some horrible thing in society, and so they look to like misdirect you. Okay, like so for example, the New York Times 1619 Project. There, you, you have like slavery and all this, and it, when you break it down. You see that, like, really what they're saying is that slave, slavery and racism were pursued because of people, like, white supremacy and slavery and so on. These resulted because of white people's racism. Like, white people and their antipathy to black people is the, is the guiding force here, and it's the main problem in the U.S. So it's not that slavery was lucrative and it's, it was a capitalist enterprise. It was the racist people and their racist thoughts that are bad, and that's the problem. And Greta... You know, because when you understand slavery and white supremacy, it's it, it, it it's uh, something that helps to inform your understanding of, of capitalism and what capitalism requires in the population. Right. It can be it's very easily understood that way if you're serious about it. Greta is, is similar, except instead of a race, it's a generation. She's just like, we are angry at you, old generation, your generation. So it's like it's not the generation. You know? Right. It's the it's like the pinnacle of a corporate overworld. An, an oligarchy that destro destroys what you know de democracy uh, around the around the world and makes it so there's no institutions capable of interfering with corporate greed. It's not a group of people who were born around at the same time. Yeah, yeah I mean, no, it's just silliness, and it, and it, it it's it's totally uh, unthreatening movement for that reason, and that's why she's promoted, of course. You know, that's why she's. She's acceptable to the ruling class, to say the least, because her her message in the movement she's helped lead is not challenging the elite's hold over over the economy and the world, uh, you know. And um, so it's a you know again it, it it distracts people into you know activism that again it really at least to me, seems like more or less a dead end. Um, so yeah. that, that works totally fine for the, yeah. for the powers that be. Yeah, this is, they, they, this is a way to get really rich, I think, when, you're, when you put stuff out there that's friendly to the, 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 the ruling, you know, tiny uh, oligarchy. If you, even if it, has a, if it has a progressive veneer, more is the better because, you know, I mean, they need to find some way to somehow make uh, a, a, a trans version of this because and then elevate some figures that way uh, you know it's like anything and i don't mean i'm not saying that to be like like i have some beef with the trans movement what i'm just saying is like all of these these, uh, these being cultural used, issues are yeah. used as props by cynical people like well, they're not interested in helping person. these people yeah you know they've created that person now there's that trans uh woman who's now the spokesperson for the ukrainian military oh yeah which is the most fascist retrograde uh, who said that russians aren't human beings yeah i mean it's it's very that is a that's a strange one why was that, that person gonna... seized upon to be the spokesperson i mean i think that they're just kind of desperate at this point in these ways so, but yeah it shows something that they're desperate their desperation led to her is what yeah. i'm saying yeah no I, that, I agree yeah. And then, of course, you had Greta Thunberg meeting with, with Zelensky. You have two, two media-manufactured 
heroes, uh, you know, convening with each other. I, I you know, um, it's just, and the people don't see it for what it is. That that yeah. this is just a charade. Well, now we're we're getting into this, and I think this will be the last question because I said we'd go about an hour. But so all of this political madness in the United States, you know, realistically, it doesn't, it would not seem that RFK or Cornell West have strong chances going into 2024. So we're likely going to get another imperialist, you know, corporate Muppet running the, the country, which is, you know, we've survived that way for a while. Maybe we'll survive another four years. What do you see China and, and, and Russia and the BRICS, you know, because you've done a good bit writing and traveling you know, to the global south, and you know a good bit about Russia and China. Like it's, it's. I'm bummed looking at you know many things in the United States, but what the rest of the world is not sitting standing still. So, what do you see um, them doing? The rest of the world, the non-U.S. world, and not people that aren't part of the Western Empire. How do you see the the current dynamics playing out uh, from these people in the coming years? I think they're going to move forward without the United States. I mean, I think you're going to see a U.S. that is going to be more and more isolated politically, diplomatically, and economically, where these countries are going to find ways to trade, again, outside the Western system, find currencies to trade with that are not the U.S. dollar, and the U.S. will be weakened in that way. And that's the irony of all this. That the U.S.'s will to power, its 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 desperate attempt to cling to hegemony, yeah. is what will make its influence on the world inevitably recede. I mean, that's that's that to me is kind of hilarious. It's the old Darth Vader version of the dialectic, where like Princess Leia says, you know, the more that you tighten your grip the more star systems will slip through your fingers, right? It's absolutely <laughs> is, true. I mean, that's the dialectic, right? I mean, and this is, they don't really, like, that to me is, is a wild thing to think about this, is that what Kennedy is saying is that he's actually trying to preserve American power to some degree, but, and then is saying that, that, like, the best way to, to preserve it would be to use it for the benefit of humanity instead of using it to screw humanity forever, you know? And, and like, I... I think that his arguments in this case are they're, they're they're accurate, and it's somehow they're not they're not re they're not resonating with with uh, with everyone, and uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, you know eighteen months or or whatever uh, sixteen months uh, I'd say it will be you know and and you know uh, it's the Chinese curse may live in interesting times we live in interesting times and um, but I don't regret that I I think it's a time of great opportunity. And you do your best, and you also have to be willing to, again, embrace imperfection, to realize the good is not the enemy of the great, to be willing to make mistakes, but to do something practically to make this world a better place, you know? And no one has the answers. And, but that's great that no one has the answers. There's no wise man who's going to point the way here, you know? We're all grab, you know groping in the dark to figure out what to do. And um, again, I do think it, the Kennedy campaign for, for, again, all of its complexities and, and shortcomings represents a means to 
to be active in the world in a positive way. And that, you know, again, to me, that's enough. Well, Dan Kavalik, I'll put some links in the show notes to your uh, to some of your recent books. Do you have anywhere that you would recommend people go to follow you uh, and follow your work? I think Twitter's very good. I'm at Daniel M. Kavalik. I think you'll see most, uh, if not all, of, of what I do. I post up there. Okay, very good. And I'm really glad that you are also are here, one of the few people on the left, such as it is, along with me who are putting this crown of thorns on our on our heads uh, and, and taking some some shit day to day probably for it. But uh, and, you know, I'm, I realize I risk looking silly with a backing a political campaign that may go badly and so on. But I'm glad that you're willing to do this and uh, that, that I that people like you recognize that there are more important things than like putting your finger in the air and, and you know, picking the course of action that's going to make you the most popular and so on. So uh, my hat's off to you for uh, being uh, having the courage to, to, to tell the truth, even when you know you're going to have to take some shit for it. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Aaron, and thanks for giving me this opportunity. I appreciate it. Thanks to Dana Chavaria for engineering the episode and to Mock Orange for providing our music. And thanks to everyone out there who supports American Exception on Patreon so we can continue bringing the light. If you are not a subscriber, please consider becoming one so that we can keep doing this. Lately, I've been thinking about JFK and the US left and people like Castro and Khrushchev. It's crazy to think about how their reactions to Dallas contrast with those of US leftists. Castro immediately understood. This is bad news. This is very bad news. He said upon receiving the news that Kennedy had been shot in Dallas. Then he went on Cuban radio in the following days and basically had the assassination all figured out right away. JFK assassination researchers in the U.S. would spend decades on the subject, but broadly speaking, they would arrive at the same conclusions that Fidel had surmised very early on. How does this all relate to RFK Jr. in 2024? I worked for Obama and soon after came to realize that he was working precisely for Wall Street's global empire. So in hindsight, it was obvious that all the good things Obama said were opportunistic bullshit, while the bullshit sops and statements that he made on the campaign were actually who he really was. By contrast, RFK Jr. is more incisive than Obama ever was. He has said... My top priority will be to end the corrupt merger between state and corporate power. And while he is presently running in the primary of the very corrupt Democratic Party, he goes way further than Mr. Hope and Change ever did. Robert Kennedy has described the Democrats as a party that has brought the warmongering neocons into our foreign policy and turned our domestic policy over to Wall Street and large corporations. Some of you may counter with, but hey, his Israel positions are bullshit. To that I would say, compare him to Obama. With Obama, the bullshit was his true essence. He was ultimately motivated by the fabulous money and power that comes from being the empire's top executive and front man. In Bobby's case, I surmise that he is in part motivated, in considerable part, motivated by his knowledge of what happened to his uncle in 1963. The corrupt merger between state and corporate power 
into John Kennedy's presidency and life. A few years later, Robert Kennedy wanted to win the presidency so that he could resume his brother's quest for peace and bring JFK's killers to justice. He was killed as well. Bobby knows very well what happened to his uncle and father and why it happened. He is friends with people like James Douglas and David Talbot, who have written extensively on these subjects. I believe that he is compelled to try and succeed or his father failed, and now it is even harder because the situation in the U.S. is far more insane than in 1963. Just compare how far to the right Biden is vis-a-vis the Kennedy brothers or LBJ or even Richard Nixon. But Bobby is trying to find some way to forge a winning consensus in the U.S., despite the deep corruption and cynicism at this late and very dangerous stage of the U.S. empire. If you think he is not a threat to the oligarchy that owns the U.S. empire, look at how their media outlets, politicians, and think tank rent boys are waging holy war on Bobby. The odds are against him. And as Daniel Ellsberg would point out, the odds are stacked against humanity escaping nuclear doomsday. But to my mind, the long odds are just more reason why we have to keep chasing gold. Where's the passion?